How can you do all that needs done in life and still pursue your desire to learn French or the guitar or grow a plant or make art? You can't put a fiddle under your pillow and wake up playing it, though how cool would that be? But one thing we can do, no matter how chaotic and overwhelming life can be, is know that every tiny small motion in the direction of those endeavors really do matter. And not only that, they add up over time with great momentum. Join me, Annie Fane Barillon, as I interview painters and gardeners, designers and musicians, photographers and cooks, creative livers of any kind, who have somehow, in the middle of it all, continued on their creative paths, no matter what. Hello, sweet folks. Welcome to the first episode of season two of Fane House Radio. Starting now, my plan is to dive into producing a new episode every single week. Yee-hoo! I hope that you subscribe to the show so that these new episodes pop up automatically in your feed. And if you know anyone at all who might enjoy listening, please do share it with them too. This is Fane House Radio, and I'm so glad you're here. My name is Alex McLeod. I'm a musician. I play fiddle and banjo and a little guitar here and there. And I'm a dance caller. Call square dances. Was just just learning to call contras when uh, the pandemic kind of shut down some of that activity. And I'm also kind of a, I guess, a maker. I like to make things. And that could be cooking, also some carpentry, woodwork, some metal work. I've recently gotten into rock hounding and then cutting and polishing stones. I definitely get interested in new stuff all the time. But those are, that's kind of the, that's kind of the current list. And didn't you recently make yourself a banjo? <laughs> I sure did. Yeah, two weeks ago, a new banjo was born in the world. Brother Lindsay's help. It was just a great week building with someone who really knows the geometry of that instrument and made a banjo that I'm just so proud of. I've just been showing it off to everybody I can find. Tell us a little bit about where you live. I live in Seattle, right in the heart of Seattle in Washington State. It's called the Emerald City, not because of any gemstone properties, but because it's just green. It's green, green, green all the time. And it's green because we're in our rainy season, which will which means it's just gray and wet every day until about the 4th of July is when you can depend on the weather getting really good. On clear days, uh, which are rare this season, but you can see the Olympic mountain range snow-capped peaks to the west and the Cascade mountain range snow-capped peaks to the east. Mount Rainier looms and dominates in the south and Mount Baker you can see in a, depending on where you stand in the city to the north. And then the shimmering sound all around. It's, it's a pretty beautiful spot to live. I was seeing that you have a love for foraging mushrooms. If we live in the middle of a city, that's a little bit harder to do. <laughs> we got to yeah. go out in nature. And that's something I learned from my husband who learned from his grandfather in France. And at first I felt hesitant because what if they're poisonous, all of that. Right. But then I really realized the more you do it, there's a certain smell, there's a certain look and you really recognize what you're looking for and you feel safe eating them. And it's such a pleasure. And I yes. was wondering if you would tell us how you got into that. My grandfather also had an interest in mushrooms. He had like light boxes. He would take spore prints and stuff. I remember those things kind of being in the garage and he was very excited about the spore prints as a kid. I was, I really wasn't that interested, but, uh, and he had lots of books. Uh, my grandfather was definitely, um, he was a Presbyterian pastor and a professor of philosophy uh, at Whitworth College here in Washington State. And he just a book guy, had lots of books. And there were volumes and volumes of mushroom illustrations and 
and stuff. That was more of a latent interest though. I don't have a memory of going mushrooming with him, but about, I don't know, 11, 12 years ago, decided that that was a thing I needed to learn and started learning about it. And one of the best bits of advice I got, I think the very first book I bought was Mushrooming with Safety or something like that. And it was just about kind of quelling some of those fears that a lot of people, myself included, bring into mushroom. Like, what if I get it wrong? In one of the books, it was like, well, you know, if you were to try to tell somebody who had never seen celery or leeks to go to the grocery store and jump into the produce section and get you some leeks, and you'd say, well, they're kind of, they're long and fibrous and they're kind of white at the bottom, but they get greener as they get to the top. Someone who had never seen celery or leeks before could maybe make a mistake between celery and leeks. But once you've seen them side by side, there's, you'd never make that mistake again. And I think with mushrooms, it's often the same. It's like, once you've actually seen them, there's no getting it wrong. Like you'll get it right. That's uh, something I try to remember when I go out there. I also don't, you know, shove unknown mushrooms into my mouth, but. And are your kids interested in that or do you take them with you or are they yeah. curious? It was a really nice way with my kids are quite young. It was a really nice way to be in the woods with them. And, you know, if you've had the experience of trying to hike with children, the lake that's supposedly a half mile down the trail can just be an eternity away. I think destination focused outdoor outings with kids can be wearisome for everybody because kids don't really have that destination fixed in their mind as a as a big motivation. But hunting for mushrooms was still very different with kids. They could just be out in the woods and I could be totally happy roaming in a 50 square foot area. <laughs> the kids were happy. There's plenty of ground to look at when you're looking for mushrooms. And it became a really nice way of uh, being out in the woods with the kids. And as they got older, kids are really good at finding mushrooms. It's like a treasure hunt for them. At least it was for my kids. They, they weren't interested in eating them at that point, but they loved finding them. And they got sharp eyes and they're closer to the ground and they're really good at it. So it was easy for them to feel successful at, at that, I think, also. What is your favorite way to cook chanterelles? Oh yeah, chanterelles. Well, one, I gorge on them when I have them. I just, I eat like whole chanterelle meals. It's, it's an embarrassment of mushrooms. But if I do get a surplus, then with chanterelles, I cook them down in a cast iron skillet until the water kind of comes out. Then I add lots of butter and maybe some onions. I'll cook that and season it with salt, pepper, and maybe just a little bit of nutmeg. And then I'll, I can freeze that. And that becomes a thing I can mix into or just have on its own uh, later. They seem to do better freezing. I dry my morels every year. They become shelf stable and perfect and you can just reach for them whenever you want, but chanterelles don't dry so well. So I try to cook them down and freeze them if I have them. You were describing to me a kind of transformation you've had in your life. And it's the kind of transformation story I love hearing anyone tell, which is a creative start and then being in a more like a corporate or structured work situation over years, realizing it was kind of hurting you inside. And then with the support of a partner in your family, kind of getting out of that and being happier on the other end. Could you describe that feeling that you had? Like, how did you know to leave? Yeah, I, I worked at Microsoft for 13 years and it was, it was a really amazing opportunity. And I had a lot of great experiences with that work, but it, it was wearing me down quite a bit over, over that time. And I think the feeling, <laughs> the phrase I said, a little dramatic, but I, I think I expressed the idea that if I died, if I died today, I'd be an angry ghost. Like there'd be things 
that I felt I wasn't doing or wasn't doing as much of as, as I should be. That's not a great feeling. Like when I, you know, the, the life you're leading is full of satisfaction and enjoyment. When I was looking at what was actually evoking those feelings for me, of feeling like joy and uh, satisfaction, really there wasn't much in my workplace, but there were increasingly things that were happening for me outside of work. Time with the kids, I was raising some chickens, I was learning how to play music, I was going to some of these square dances, I was getting outside for mushrooms or game, and all of those experiences brought me a lot of joy. And I think it was more than just recreation. It felt like these experiences were, were tied to something pretty significant in just my human nature um, that I was missing. And so when we decided to make a change away from that corporate job, um, it was definitely, there's a lot of risks involved. It wasn't like I'd achieved financial independence or anything like that. But we kind of made the, the choice to uh, choose a little bit more financial struggle with the opportunity for a lot more happiness, which is, I think, what we got. There's been so much more room in my life for the things that I think are, are truly valuable. I feel a lot happier as a result. Congratulations for making the leap because it isn't easy <laughs> and there are risks involved, like you're saying. Yeah. It's like we're always trading one thing for another thing kind of feeling. And, yeah, for sure. um, was it during that transition time, you have a blog that you said, you know, you're not adding to as much at the moment because you were ready to go out and just live it instead of only just write about it, you know, and I, I think that makes sense. That's cool. But I like what it's called. It's called morerealthings.com. Yeah. You say in, you know, you're writing about it, that it was a search for a satisfying life. I was curious if you would just talk about what the elements of a satisfying life are for you. Yeah. Um, I did start writing that blog. Basically, I think the first entry might have been the party that we threw when I left Microsoft. It was kind of a cataloging and maybe even advocating for some of these experiences that were so deeply satisfying to me. And I felt would probably be deeply satisfying to others if they felt like we're being encouraged to try them. For me, what I was finding was that there were experiences it starts out, and, and I think it's one of the first articles in the blog. My wife and I were watching our chickens in the backyard and just kind of noticed. She said, it's really relaxing watching chickens. It's like watching a fire. And that her observation just really struck me as being totally true, that both of those things were deeply relaxing. And it just made me wonder, like, what's, why is that? Like, why do we respond as people so strongly to these two kind of very different experiences? My working theory was that there are these things, these real things that were programmed for us as human animals, um, things that really impact us because they are important to our survival over time. And we have a deep and genetic memory for that stuff. And we recognize them when we're near them with a feeling of satisfaction or happiness or um, calm or whatever those uh, responses are. So I, I described those as real things. And I was kind of wanting to catalog more of them, like, like let me, let's figure out what all these things are. And then also, how do I get more of them in my life? Uh, so that's kind of, yeah, what the blog was. And for a few years, I was writing a lot about the kinds of experiences that were bringing those, evoking those feelings for me. I think what happened, I, I set the blog down a few years ago, in part because I felt I was kind of trumpeting this idea out. And it turns out, I'm not, I wasn't sure that there were that many people who were, <laughs> who were interested in hearing it. And it felt like, well, 
the most important thing is to just go live that. I don't necessarily need to advertise it. So uh, I kind of stopped writing about it. But yeah, it was an important process for me at the time to just kind of keep cataloging these things that were having a positive impact on my life. Well, kind of through that process and then putting it in front of your own eyes that way, which I think is so cool. Like you're saying, it was a stepstone time. Are there three to five things that are on your list for you now you could depend on for yourself makes a satisfying life? Uh, Yeah, I I think so. I'm not sure that I've tried to reduce it like that, but just off the top of my head, thinking about what some of those categories might be. You know, one of them was definitely a people and community element. So I was learning at the time how to be a square dance fiddler and and a square dance caller and was involved in both putting on square dances and then and participating in them. And, and I think that was just a part of being involved with a community that regularly met together face-to-face that had lots of human contact, lots of face-to-face time and, you know, context for me, I was dependent on to be here or there and people gathered in enjoyment. There was usually a lot of food involved, but just having a group of people in your life that you interact with on the regular, I think is super important. And for a lot of people that was, you know, church growing up or some other club scene or whatever, Girl Scouts or who knows what, but having that super important and it's not a guarantee for folks. There's a lot, you know, increasingly people live in really isolated lives and they don't have those kind of deeper um, community connections. So I think that was one thing where more of that I got, the better I felt. Um, some of these outdoor pursuits, I think they had a couple different themes. One was just being out in nature for whatever reason. But for me personally, being outside, experiencing weather and experiencing vistas and, you know, I think the Japanese call it forest bathing and just any outside was good. And the more of being outside I could get, the better I felt. But then also specifically hunting and gathering or foraging, you know, whether it's hunting or fishing or mushrooms or plant foraging, I think the act of getting out and doing that kind of deep pattern matching that you have to do when you're hunting or foraging or collecting mushrooms, we're built for that as people. And I think practice like looking for mushrooms or looking for wildflowers or even birding, when we practice going out and observing and looking and recognizing, we get all these beautiful like chemical boosts from our body that says, hey, you're good at this, keep doing this. And I think that's also been an important part. And then lastly, I think there's an element of craft. I think we're also built as very clever, clever little machines with lots of fine motor skills. And when we dive into, when I dive into activities, like maybe it's leather working or stone polishing or arrow making or archery, I think there's an access to, to like a flow state, which is kind of just a, I think it's another thing that we're built to do is to get focused, which clears our minds and brings on a kind of calm. And I think craft offers that. And it's a thing that, you know, for so many people who, where consumption is kind of the primary model of their lives and not making something or crafting, that feeling is, can be elusive. But once you drop into that flow state, I think you realize how important it is for mental health and wellness. While you're talking, I'm thinking about how some people have an easier time than others pursuing these things. And the other theme that connects everything you're saying is that when we're doing it and we're close to it, we feel good. It makes us feel so much better. And that's a really natural reason why. 
you know, I've had friends that they'll struggle between the dreaming of it and then the doing of it. For sure. Have, did you ever struggle with kind of getting your hands in there or was it natural to you? And of course, nowadays we have technology in between us as a barrier and the doing, you know, like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, no, absolutely. It's tough. And there's all kinds of barriers that we can put up for ourselves (laughs) around doing some of the stuff. You know, the distance between dreaming and doing is often the biggest hurdle for people. They think about doing stuff, but never quite get around to doing it. I've had mixed success with that challenge. Sometimes it's easy for me to get stuck into kind of ideating or idealizing around an activity when, you know, the truth of it is that starting almost anything new can be really difficult and you don't feel success right away. And so the strategies I've used are, my wife's been really good at this one too. She's like, just put it on the calendar. Calendar is like, it's your time, your actual time is the thing you have the most control over. It's the, it's the resource that is always yours. And you get to decide how to use it. If I put something on the calendar, it suddenly it makes it into this commitment that I'll do. Whereas if I if it's like, oh, maybe next month I'll go do something and it's not on the calendar, it won't happen. Uh, so dedicating actual time, even in small bits. And the other thing is avoid getting stuck thinking that there's a big start. Any small task that's in line with a new pursuit, hobby, or practice is a step on the way. And I've gotten stuck thinking, oh, I need to buy some tools or I need yet another guidebook before I go out there into the world or whatever the thing is that keeps you thinking, I don't have quite enough yet to start. It's almost always true that you can find a way to start just by doing it. So even with mushrooming, though it is really nice to get out into the broader open forest for mushrooming, that can be intimidating for a lot of folks because they're uncomfortable with off-trail travel or they don't know where to go. But in the summer in, in Seattle, like city parks offer a crazy amount of really fun mushroom hunting. There are always urban walks. Like there's always, we, you know, in, in the city, we call these ground scores for mushrooming, but where someone's brought in wood chips and suddenly you've got a morel patch at the local playground. And so there's just ways to start where you don't have to un, kind of unwrap the entire packet. And getting started is, is huge. Like if you can get over that barrier between thinking about doing a thing and actually doing a thing, then the rest in my experience, comes much more easily. And it's like you're saying to take any small step, that's a way to take the pressure off yourself. And then I love what you're saying also about the calendar, because it seems like we only put real valid type things on a calendar. So if you're going to put those things on the calendar, you just gave yourself permission (laughs) to treat it as a valid thing that's okay to care about. Yeah, I love that notion of giving yourself permission. I think a lot of people need that. And yeah, you're right. If you can give yourself permission to go to the dentist on the regular, then you can probably (laughs) give yourself permission to learn an instrument or do something maybe a little bit more fun than going to the dentist. We happen to share a love for square dancing. Uh And um, that's something that I grew up around and have that fun, cozy feeling about. I love nothing more than a really great like singing square <laughs> by a nice. solid collar and, yeah. and a band that's just jiving on it. It's so fun. <laughs> uh, you know, we can't wait to dance again. I was wondering, how did you get into it yourself? And then how do you explain to people who is kind of assume it's like this nerdy dorky yeehaw thing to do that actually there's a lot of community rowdy fun in it. And it has a lot to do with rhythm and togetherness and really good music. And of course, within square dance, there's all styles. There's all different kinds. So so it's not only one kind. 
also to become a caller is pretty bold. I mean, it's an intimidating thing. You're standing up there and guiding the room with your voice and you have to be calling eight counts before the next move and know the figures really, really, really be relaxed with it. And I think it's brave. So I was curious if you talk about that a little bit. So out here in the Seattle area, one of our musical institutions are the Canote brothers, Greg and Jerry Canote, twin brothers, musicians, just incredible, the most cheerful people on the planet, probably. And they host a class in Seattle. It was a, it was a string band class. And together with Candy Goldman, banjo player, they would do eight weeks and teach a tune every week. And it was a friend of mine from college who had somehow found their class and said, oh, you, you might enjoy this. I went as a guitar player. It's the only instrument I really knew at the time. And I took a class from them and I just was like totally into it. And then I was like telling my wife, oh, this is really, really great. She's like, well, I'll come and take a class too. But she's going to come as a guitar player. And I was like, well, we can't both be guitar players because then what would we do when we got home? I guess I'll just learn how to play fiddle. I didn't realize what a torturous road. Like I was. how hard it is. Yeah. <laughs> I was condemning us all to when I said that. But I started learning how to play fiddle and I was doing it through taking that class. And what they would do with the classes, you do eight weeks, you'd learn eight tunes, you'd be playing them incessantly. And then they used to frequently book a dance for the class and they would just have Greg and Jerry and Candy would be up in the front all mic'd up and they would just have the class stand behind them and play for a dance. And the first time I did that, I was up there on that stage and we lit into a tune and the caller starts it up and the, the thump of the dancers is coming off the dance floor. I was absolutely hooked from that moment on. I never wanted to play that music any other way ever again. I was like, oh, I understand what this is for now. It is for this. This music is to make this happen. And there's so many joys of the dance. Like I just, as you know, I, I kept trying to get uh, involved in playing dances, eventually formed a band and we then were hosting dances. So I saw when we were hosting dances, we did it for about three years and we had a lot of callers come through. I had a chance to observe a lot of callers. I got involved in planning some dances, eventually planning some dance festivals. So we, we were putting on the Dare to Be Square West dance events. And they were long weekends where we'd bring callers in from out east, places where that had more kind of traditions around dancing, and have them teach how to call. We'd also have bands, that would, and we would teach how to play dances. We would kind of teach all the elements of a square dance. So I had been soaking all that in, but then my step into the calling spotlight happened the way it happens for a lot of people who are involved, I think, in dances over time is I was all set up to do a dance actually for my brother's church over in Yakima. We had like 300 people out on this dance floor. And Gabe Strand, actually, who's now working at the folk school, was supposed to be the caller. And he was driving this junky RV back from some vacation and it broke down. And so he calls me and he was like, uh, I'm not going to make it. Like, we're all plugged in. We're ready to go. He's like, I'm not going to be there. And so I stood up and I called that dance just from scraps of memory from being in other dances. And <laughs> I called it for an hour. It was my first dance. We got through it. Everybody had a good time. And I was like, well, there's really no excuse now. I, I should probably start figuring out how to do this for real. That got me into to calling on the regular. And we had so many great calls. We had a very lively dance scene here in Seattle with a lot of great callers, people from kind of the folk revival of the you know 60s and 70s who were still here ready to call and teach. And then a new crop of callers like Charmaine who were calling dances, being attended by you know rowdy young people in the middle of the city. 
so it was a really nice atmosphere to learn how to call. There were house parties to to try out at, and then I started getting booked in dances and, and stuff like that. When I when I try to tell people about square dancing, I always say the same thing when I'm inviting somebody out to a dance who's never been to one. I said, one, you're going to have a great time. I totally guarantee you're going to have a smile on your face. Two, the caller's going to tell you everything you need to know how to do. You don't need to worry that you don't know how to do a thing. Because it's if you can walk through the front door, you can walk yourself through a dance. You, you've got all the skills, but they have to kind of step away from the too cool for schoolism that sometimes keeps people out on the, you know, keeps people pressed up against the wall or sitting at their table nursing a drink. As soon as you step onto the floor, you're like, oh yeah, there's this is absolutely just good fun. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's just fun. Pure, good, clean fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's there's a lot of research around people having lots of face-to-face -face interactions, the benefits of human touch, but there, there aren't that many ways that we're kind of allowed to touch each other on the casual out in the world. And square dancing is this great, big, sanctioned, reasonable touch event, which I also like. Like you get lots of human touch at a square dance, lots of firm handshakes, lots of uh, elbow swings, lots of looking in, into people's faces and the kinds of bonds that very, these are light social bonds that we're not talking about life or death commitments here, but these light social bonds are what makes a community, a broader community strengthen over time. And I think people, one, don't know how much they're missing those kinds of interactions. And, and two, they don't know what those benefits, how they're going to accrue. But I think regularly investing in those kinds of events where you get to touch people, you get to see people face to face, it reaps a lot of rewards, both personally and communally, if people practice that. It's like a way to hang out in community with close and more distant friends and family and like have a total togetherness, but you're not like talking. You don't have to talk. Yeah. You're moving yeah. together. You're just moving and doing. And, you know, and I kind of think that's fun too. What if you've talked everything out? What if you don't have anything to talk about? You know? <laughs> yeah. No, it's just a great way to, that's a kinetic conversation. You don't a have kinetic to, conversation. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And it was really fun when we were doing house parties. The other thing that I really liked was in those contexts, you'd see multi-generational fun happening where it wasn't just kind of birds of a feather age-wise or uh, kind of social click-wise, but it'd be whole families. You have adults dancing with kids. You'd have kids falling asleep underneath buffet tables and or running through rooms while the adults are, are dancing. And I loved that there was an activity that was so available to people of all ages and abilities. Like that's a rare, it's kind of a rare thing when everybody can participate on an even footing in an event like that. Yes. I started getting out on the dance floor when I was four. <laughs> it just was such a, like you're saying, it was a very special and important atmosphere to grow up in. And I'm definitely thankful for it. And I think any of us should go out and try to find a scene. It's okay. If you don't play tunes, maybe you dance or maybe you tap your foot or maybe you just enjoy. Yeah. I often tell people like go to one and just watch if you want. It's uh, it's not a spectator sport, but it certainly makes for fun people watching. There's no more visible joy than a child dancing with their parents. They just love it. There's no <laughs> sadder thing than to watch a parent who's like too embarrassed to try it when their kid is just hanging on them, just like, please, 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 <laughs> can we do this together? So I, I love it when people do find that, both adults and, and kids and, and them together. And it reminds us as parents to just just say just, yes. What's going to happen? <laughs> just, just do, do it. it. <laughs> just do it. You'll look back and this time will be gone. So just yeah. do it. Yeah. So sweet. Yeah. 
Do you have like a most favorite moment that happened because you played old time or you were calling a dance or that you were participating in all of that? You know, there have been so many good ones. It would be hard to kind of single one out. There have been a couple of just dances that felt like particularly rowdy and like high participation and close quarters where it's like everybody's just just sawing away and the dance is happening and some of those moments are just kaleidoscopes of color and sensation i remember one time we were staying some of those late late nights early mornings were you know at four in the morning someone decides to start making breakfast and you realize that you're you're just about to keep going <laughs> for another, <laughs> another six hours remember like, once here we go here comes yeah, phase four here, here it goes yeah just uh eat a little bit and get right back into it yeah, the, kind of the sustained energy around some of that stuff just makes you feel like a kid again. Those have been fun. There are other times where, it, you know, that you get into the trance of a tune with people and that can be just magic. There have been some times at standing as a caller where you're looking down over a sea of people and they're moving in sympathy with each other. And that is just amazing. It just, it's just watching like a human ocean and it never ceases to be awesome. So yeah, there's just so many. Like, I feel like that's part of what music and dance has brought into my life it's just so many moments like that where I just feel absolutely uh, thrilled to be right there right then. What is filling up your inspiration cup these days? Yeah in COVID times there was definitely some shifts that happened. Before COVID got started I was really ramping up my calling kind of career was starting to really ramp up. I was starting to take some national festival gigs and was calling, you know, more regionally, which is very exciting. I was, I was supposed to be going down to LA to call this urban square dance. I was super excited about. And then all that just like went away. So I filled it with some other things. Primarily, I had been waiting for seven years on a custom banjo from Jason Romero in British Columbia. That COVID spring, he finally got back to me. I was like, hey, I'm ready to build your banjo. And it arrived in April. And so I was just in love with that instrument and playing it, you know, just basically learning how to be a banjo player on my own um, during the pandemic. And so that was a huge boon for me to get to explore all my fiddle tunes on a banjo that was made so beautifully by a real craftsperson. So it was also, it was doubly neat to be able to come down and build a banjo with, uh, with Lindsay, because now it's like, I really love playing banjo and it's really fun to build such a quality instrument with, with him. We dropped our second kid off for his freshman year at college uh, that fall also. To celebrate, my wife and I went on this, uh, it was almost four week road trip through the Southwest. On this road trip, we added rock hounding as an activity because so many other cultural centers were closed for COVID. So we thought, well, rock hounding will keep us away from the, the maddening crowds. And, and the Southwest is an amazing place to collect all kinds of beautiful stuff. So we brought these rocks home and then I got involved in cutting and polishing stones, making what are called cabochons that are suitable for using in jewelry. And it's such a neat way to unlock the inside of a stone to see its, its beauty when you polish them up, just incredible stuff. So I've been really enjoying that. But then I also, uh, and this one I just set aside, but I spent about two years learning how to ride horses and rope steers. I got to the point where I was really looking at trying to buy a horse and start doing some rodeo events. We started roping live steers and that was just the most fun you could have on a horse, as far as I could tell. <laughs> it's so much fun. That was a really fun, challenging and stimulating activity 
that also kept me outside during the pandemic. You know, with music and dance in my life, I don't think I would have had the space to do that. So it was just kind of a, an interesting thing that, that I filled in with over the last couple of years. Some of your usual loves had to be put on hold. So then yeah. you found some other loves, you know, and it makes me think, okay, well, we have all kinds of stuff inside of us, all kinds of possibilities of things we might love to do, not just two things, you know? Yeah. I think for folks that got stuck on the absence of the things that they were used to doing, like song and dance, I think it was a much harder time. But I, I saw many people figure out some other things to do. I was just meeting with a, a bandmate of mine last night that I used to play with all the time. And he started doing boxing over the pandemic. And it's like totally in love with it. Totally new thing for him to do. Just talked with another friend who's a musician and he's starting to write some short stories. I just love that people stay open. And for me, like curiosity is a big characteristic of mine. Like I'm always curious about new stuff. In fact, it could be a little bit of a problem. I kind of go from one thing to the next because there's just so many things to learn. If but, you could only be alive till a thousand. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm getting to an age where I shouldn't be jumping on a horse and trying to rope a steer. Maybe <laughs> maybe rock hounding and polishing is a better activity to, to move into. So I think there's there's lots of reasons to slide into new activities. I mean, it's, it's an, an infinite world of creative and cool stuff for people to be involved with. Well, in honor of that and the fact that it, it sometimes is hard to fold all of these things into our daily lives because, you know, there's bills to pay and life and all yeah. the things. Do you have any last words of encouragement for anyone out there trying so hard to create and make and do or even try something new that they question whether they could even get started in? I think that for anybody who's looking at trying something new, whether it's something like mushroom hunting or some craft or an instrument, finding a group or even one other person, whether they're new also or whether they're experienced, it makes the kind of personal accountability so much easier when you're meeting with somebody else to, to attempt something. And I think it, it just amplifies the learning and, and it, it adds in a human companionship element to the activity, which I think is also important. But it can be a huge part if you're trying to start something new, if you have somebody who can teach you or if you can learn together with somebody and catch each other's ideas and classes or an awesome way to start. I love starting at the knees of some teacher and so signing up for a class, whether that's virtual or in person, can be a huge boost. It puts it onto a calendar, it makes a commitment, and it gives you the chance to have access to maybe tools, materials that you wouldn't otherwise know how to get. It's always acted for me as a big jump start into an activity. It's just take a class and then see where it goes. It's a great way to assess your interest. Usually you don't have to invest too much, but it ha it's a place to maybe meet some other people who are interested in a particular thing uh, to meet a teacher to learn what the community of makers or practitioners looks like. I always think that's a great, that's a great start. Yeah. You don't have to go it alone. No, no. I think it's very hard to sometimes start and keep up the momentum if you're going it alone. If you'd like to be in touch, email me at afainhouse at gmail.com. I also hope that you're inspired to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. If you would like to watch these interviews in video form and are curious about the happenings of my little business called Fane House, where I paint and make art prints and gift cards from my watercolor originals, I'd love for you to sign up for my email list. When you do, you get a coupon for 10% off a one-time purchase in my Etsy shop and first dibs on my annual limited edition calendar printing. You will also be granted access to our free private Facebook group. 
which is the one spot you can watch these interviews. If this all sounds fun to you, go to your web browser and type bit.ly backslash Fainhouse to sign up. This is not a weekly newsletter, but rather a list of folks who are interested in hearing from me time to time. You can find this link, as well as links for each person I interview, in the show notes of each episode. I'm Annie Fain Barillon. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll leave you with a quote for the day. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Neil Donald Walsh.